good? Okay, okay. Hallelujah. Let's start off with prayer. Hallelujah. Father God, Lord, we want you to be exalted in all things. We thank you, Father, for your goodness and your, your greatness. We honor you, Lord God. We reverence you, Lord God. We praise you. We thank you, Father God, for the gifts you've given us in this world. We thank you, Lord, that there are people who've come in into, into this house today, people who've come in here broken in, in lots of different ways, people who've come in here tired, at the end of their rope, without hope. We thank you, Father God, that you have answers for each and every person in this place. I thank you, Lord God, that you're going to speak to our hearts, Lord. And you may say different things to different people in here. And I thank you, Father, because you're a personal God. We thank you how much you love us, Lord. We thank you for that, Lord God. We stand in awe of you. And I thank you, Lord, just to speak through me this morning as we, we talk about this subject, Father. And I thank you, Lord, that you touch us in, in the way that we need to be touched. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, good to see everybody here. We are in week two now of our series. You came back, so you're, you're the brave one. Way to go, way to go. Um, first of all, I want to say thank you uh, to those who, who are getting your questions together. You're throwing in your questions. We told you last week, um, you know, this, this is kind of a short series, a little three-week series, but we want your questions because at a later date soon to come, uh, we want to come back and address the specific questions some of you uh, may have. And uh, I know many of you have really, really good questions, questions about dating or questions about sex or, or in some, some form, homosexuality, uh, all, kinds of, all kinds of questions. Um, I know you've got them out there. So, uh, and just as a reminder, you've got three ways you can send them to us. You can tweet us at gchurchspring, you can email questions at gchurch.net, and you can use that amazing uh, system of writing on pieces of paper. And uh, the easiest thing is just stick that in the offering offering bucket as you go by. Uh, if you like are doing it right now, maybe stick it in the, um, drop it off by the Welcome Center. They'll, they'll take your pieces of paper. Yes, ma'am. Okay. So, or you can tweet it. Like right now, while I'm talking, you can like tweet a question. Um, so that'd be cool. Anyway, but we want to uh, address those. One of the things hopefully that uh, you're starting to realize, if you didn't before, is that the Bible is actually very, very pro-sex. Amen? Um, it's not at all the sort of prudish sort of anti-sex manual that like some people on the street assume it is. And uh, just, I'll just throw this out there again. I said this last week, uh, just as a kind of public disclaimer. This, this uh, series isn't really rated G, so if you have small children, uh, you may want to go ahead and check them into our wonderful children's ministry. Um, if you prefer to keep them in here, we defer to your judgment. It's your car ride home. So I'll just say that. Okay. I wash my hands of it. But the Bible is pro-sex, and uh, it's pretty joyful about it, too. I mean, how does the Bible begin? The Bible begins in the first two chapters of the Bible. God creates a man, and he's running around naked. And what does God bring him? He brings him a woman, Eve. And what does Adam do? If you remember, he bursts into song, one of the first love poems, right? This is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, you know about this. And uh, so this is beautiful, the first love poem. The Bible starts out with a, a naked man singing rapturous love songs to a naked woman in the presence of God. And that's the opening scene, right? So that's pretty good. That's pretty good. We, last week we, we looked at a, some some really juicy stuff from uh, Song of Solomon. Um, there's a passage I was reading in Proverbs 5 where it encourages men to be ravished by their wife's breasts. There's no way to, like, turn that into a spiritual metaphor, right? It's just there, so praise God. Um, the point, uh, the point is the Bible is filled with open, unashamed, joyful celebration of physical love between a husband and a wife. And there's no reasonable way uh, you can come away and say that the Bible has a negative view of sex. It does have a negative view of sexual abuse, uh, sexual misuse, sexual immaturity. 
But this week, um, what I want to do today is talk about sex and intimacy within a marital context. Next week, we're going we're, we're gonna to talk, uh, we'll continue that, but we're also going to touch on, uh, we're going to talk about singleness and how our sexuality is expressed if we're not married. So we're not leaving anybody out, praise God. Um, because you are a sexual being. You realize that? You are a sexual being. It may come as a surprise to some people, but you're a sexual being whether or not you are actually having sex. You're a sexual being. Um, just ask anybody who is single and celibate, and they'll tell you, uh, sexuality is kind of like the soundtrack to life. It's like always on, right? Um, it's just sort of everywhere. And so we want to celebrate your marriage, and we want to celebrate your, your singleness if you're not married. Today, today I want to talk about sex in its proper context according to Scripture, uh, which is the context of covenant. Covenant. And if we were going to use our modern word today, what we all know, that's marriage. Covenant is a promise to be there with you no matter what. And so covenantal sex is, it's not just something uh, pleasurable, but it's an expression of that incredible commitment that allows for, for nakedness without shame. It allows for vulnerability without fear. Covenant is relational. And that's what uh, we're, we're gonna, you're going to come away with today. Covenant is relational. Within our culture, uh, what happens instead is, is we often practice sex as kind of a dislocated part of our lives. Instead of it being relational, we keep it isolated, it's separate. Sex is something that, hey, it's my business, it's nobody else's. Um, and it doesn't have to be brought into a relational context. And in fact, in our culture, that scene is kind of a, a form of freedom, right? And, and so I have the freedom to do what I want with my sex life. And the sadness behind this is that what we're really achieving is, is like a disassociation of our sexual lives from any real, real relationship, uh, any real commitment with another person. So hopefully today, after putting sex in its context today, you and I can see that God's not trying to hold us back. He's not trying to punish us or hold us back sexually. Uh, or say, I don't want you to be, you know, that free. But rather God is saying, I want you to be that relationally woven together. Are you with me? Okay. Now, one thing that our church and, and society seem to agree on is that uh, one of the most powerful forces in the universe is love, right? We all agree on that. There's lots of love songs out there. How we define love is another matter. So let's look at love from a biblical perspective. There's a lot of commentary uh, on the different words for love in the Bible, and one that gets a pretty bad rap sometimes is our word, is the word uh, for love that's eros. It's where we get our word uh, for erotic. Eros simply means a physical passionate love with a sensual desire or longing. But if you were here last week, as you might suspect, God is actually not against you having passions. He's not against you having sensual desires or longings. He created those. He's a pretty passionate God, right? And, and he created you to be a pretty passionate person, okay? But just as sex happens uh, in the context of loving, intimate uh, commitment, this, this thing called marriage, Eros, in, in all of its toe-curling passion, it actually ought to be an expression of a deeper form of love. And we call that agape love. Agape love being the word for unconditional, committed, loyal love. This is the choice of the heart that says, I'm here for you no matter what. It's, and, and agape love is expressed in a variety of different ways depending on the relationship. Depending if you have, if you're showing agape love to your wife, it's different than if you're showing agape love to a friend or to a neighbor. So agape love is there, but it's expressed in a variety of ways. So that even in, you know, my most, you know, passionate moments, 
with, with my wife when I'm, you know, like speaking with a Spanish accent, you know, and I'm, I'm really, really got it going on. It's actually just another expression of my committed love, okay? Now, understand, this is not putting a seatbelt on Eros. It's not trying to, it's not saying now, you know, not too much Eros with your spouse, you know, just so much. That's not what God's saying. What it is is putting Eros in the perfect context, which actually, when you put Eros in the context of agape, it allows it to express itself freely, without any shame, without hesitation. You can take the lid off, amen? And God says in his word, what we see throughout scripture is that everything, everything should be an expression of agape, including your erotic self. So that every passion that we have is really an expression of committed love. That's eros in its proper place. Unfortunately, what we live in is a culture that, that has this all upside down, right? And so our culture says, <coughs> excuse me, well, if I'm going to love you, I'm going to commit to you, that's got to be an expression of eros. That's going to come out of eros, right? I need to feel the burn, right? Otherwise, I'm not sure I love you, right? I need to be wooed. I need that excitement. I need my breath taken away. You know, and then I'll call it love, and then I'll stick around. It's everything wrapped in arrows. This is the over-sexualization of our culture. It's because we have it upside down. Everything is sold with it. Everything is permeated by it. It's in the air we breathe. It's everywhere. The eroticization, if that's a word, eroticization of our culture. And what God desires for us instead is a love that is committed to each other first, and out of that commitment flows erotic passion within marriage. Now, a question we may ask is, is this. Why marriage? Why marriage? What's the big deal about marriage? Why did God choose marriage? I think marriage is one of the, God's primary ways of planting his image in creation. I, I've come to believe that marital intimacy is one of the most beautiful pictures of God's divine love for us. It's a picture of his love for us. Think about it. And last week we kind of talked about, you know, in creation, how he hovered over the waters. You have the entering and the receiving aspect of intimacy. God entering into creation, hovering over the waters. God entering into us to create new life. The husband and the bride playing their reciprocal role there. You have the ecstatic delight God seems to take in us. And some of the language used in the word is it's shocking how much delight he takes in us. And, and of course, reflected in the ecstasy of human lovemaking. You have the covenantal relationship, the commitment. You have the new life as a result of that intimacy. The new birth that occurs within the bride. And we're referred to over and over as the bride, over and over. It's no mistake. Now, if you have your Bibles, look over at Ezekiel 16. I want to look at the language God uses. Notice the language he uses when he's talking about the intimate relationship he desires to have with us. And you get a sense of how he views marriage between people as a reflection of his marriage with us. When he talks about uh his marriage with us, sometimes God uses fairly sexual terms as well as, you know, covenantal or, or marriage terms because they fit together. When you talk from a biblical perspective about marriage, when, when you're talking about sex, you're talking about marriage. When you're talking about marriage, you're talking about sex. From a biblical perspective, one is the context or the other. So let's look at uh, Ezekiel 16. Verse 7, he says, I made you flourish like a plant of the field. Now, God uses a variety of metaphors here when he's talking about us. He starts here with a, this agricultural imagery, kind of. And, and then he says, and you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Now, suddenly here, God is, is going to flow from the metaphor of God as caretaker to the role of the lover, the husband. He says, your breasts were formed and your hair had grown 
yet you were naked and bare. Now you can see the Bible's not afraid of sexual imagery, is it? It's not afraid. Because that's not a bad thing if it's striving toward marriage in its, in its proper, healthy place, if, when it, that exalts sex to where it should be. In verse 8, he says, When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. Now, some of your translations might say, You were old enough to make love to. This is what God is saying to us. You were old enough to make love to. The word love here, it refers specifically, the, the Hebrew word there is, is an is a erotic kind of love. It's the same word used in Proverbs 7 where he, where, where he says, uh, come, let's drink deeply of love until morning. Right? It's an erotic love. He says, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. Here he's saying, I put my robe over you. Some of your, your, your Bibles will say that. And that's marital imagery. He's saying, you're still naked to me, but, but I'm protecting you from others. I'm taking you away to the marriage bed. I made my vow to you, and I entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. This beautiful love language that God is using. He's talking about you and me. God says, I entered into marriage with you. Right? You understand, from a biblical point of view, to think about sex is to think about marriage. And God doesn't just say, God doesn't say to us, you know what, spiritually, I want to have a deep, you know, spiritual, passionate time with you. That'd be cool. I'm not really committed, though. Um, I mean, I'll get something out of it. You'll get something out of it. But frankly, you know, if you bug me, I'm out of here, so don't screw it up. God doesn't say that to us, does he? Right? You know, you guys, you, we're just way too different. We tried it. We're just too different. Does God say that? No. God is not interested in casually, spiritually dating you. He has no interest in that whatsoever. What he wants is that deep, penetrating intimacy with us. And he wraps that in the covenant of marriage. And, and, and it's this amazing picture of a God who is committed and a God who's passionate. And he says, and your sexual life should express that. That's what he's telling us. So when we dislocate, we, when we mistake all this, and we dislocate sex from covenant, we, we're teaching ourselves the wrong lesson about God's love for us. So there's this ongoing spiritual theme throughout the Bible about God, of, of God marrying his people. Spiritual intimacy is pictured as sexual in, intimacy. This explains why we also see the other side of this, the flip side, idolatry in the Bible when you read passages, what is it, how is it pictured by God? It's pictured as adultery, right? God sees that as adultery. Over and over we see God, you know, lamenting the unfaithfulness of his, of his people. And the language he uses isn't like king and subjects type stuff. He's not like, look, I'm the king and you're my subjects and you disobeyed, so off to prison you go. He doesn't talk that kind of language, does he? When God is at his most anguished, it's the language of a husband who's so heartbroken by a bride who's cheated on him with a stranger on their wedding day. That's the language we get. It, it's heart-wrenching stuff. Okay. Um, okay, I want to shift gears here for a second. Okay, we're going to shift gears. I want to go back to, to a, a chapter that we went to last week, 1 Corinthians 6. We looked at this last week, but I want to focus on something new uh, that has huge implications for us here in 21st century America as we, you know, try to navigate the waters of sexuality. Um, there's an amazing principle here that's easy for us to miss, but it, it's, it's a, a bit of profound transformative truth. And it starts in verse 12, 1 Corinthians 6, uh, verse 12. He says this, Paul says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. You've probably read this passage before. I've read this before. And it's kind of a cool passage. And, uh, you know, it's a nice memory verse. But there's something very revolutionary happening in this passage here. Um, some of your passage, 
Bibles might say, or mastered by anything. I will not be mastered by anything. So everything is lawful now that we've been set free from the law, but the question now is what is best? What is wise? What is profitable? What is beneficial? What Paul is summarizing here in just a few words is the revolutionary effect of the coming of Christ transforming us out of the old covenant into a new covenant. And I'm going to explain this. When Christ came, an amazing thing happened. We were transformed out of a law-based ethic into a love-based ethic. And it's not just a different way of, of doing stuff. It's a whole different focus for the heart. So he says here, what if, what if it's not about the rules anymore? Technically, technically, you can do whatever you want. Now, if you only look at that part of the equation, if you stop right there, uh, that leads to anarchy. Okay? Oh, you know, no more rules. I can do whatever I want. Woo! -hoo! But he says, now it's not just asking what rules I have to obey. Let's assume everything is lawful. The question is, what is beneficial? So we might put it, we might put it this way. What is the most loving for my relationship with God and with others? What's most loving? Because now a love-based ethic is going to lead us into a more intimate relational territory than ever before, okay? On the other hand, uh, usually law functions, law functions well, and I know we got some, we got a couple lawyers in here. Law functions really well when it's given as a list of prohibitions. Law functions best, and it, and it works. It, it's often stated in the negative when you think about it. Instead of commanding things for you to do, law is clearest when it points out the things you shouldn't do, right? It's true of our Constitution. You know, we got the Bill of Rights. The Congress shall make no law, right? It doesn't list all the laws Congress can make. That would be really long, right? Um, the Ten Commandments is, is a lot of thou shalt nots, right? Old Covenant, Old Covenant gives us a list of thou shalt nots. It gives us some thou shalts, but primarily law functions best by telling you what to avoid. Law tells us what to avoid. If you don't go here and you don't go over there, you'll be fine, right? And you know you're in safe territory because you're not doing this and you're not doing that. I know I'm oversimplifying a bit. Now, now law-based ethic, all you parents out there, we understand this really well, right? Because that's often necessary for, for a younger developmental phase, right? Um, for children and for spiritual children, right? So when your kids are of a certain age, you tell them things that they can't do. You can't really sit down, you know, with a three-year-old and say, now, is that the loving thing to do with your, your baby brother? When you bite your baby sister, are we reflecting the generosity inherent in the kingdom of God when we do that? You know, How do you think your tantrum makes her feel? <laughs> right? It doesn't, it doesn't work so well. Let's process this together, Mason. No. There's no processing with my six-year-old. Um, it's not going to work. Sometimes you just have to teach what is and is not tolerated. No biting. No throwing spaghetti on the wall. No. Um, I can't trust my six-year-old <coughs> Excuse me. I can't trust my six-year-old to recognize that moment when, like, a particular show on TV is starting to grieve his spirit. You know? He's going to watch it like this. And then he's going to scream all night, you're right, because he can't sleep. So, so instead, what we say, we say, no PG-13 movies, right? Because, you know, it just it takes, it takes off the table. You can watch this. But the goal now... What if we stayed there, right? What if we, we were, what if we were stuck in that? The goal is to grow up into a new covenant relationship where it's not just about the rules. Don't do this, don't do that. And develop a love-based ethic. Oh, asking what is love leading me to do? 
How do I show love for my family, my, my brother, my, my mother, and my father, my parents, my, eventually my spouse, the way I should? So new covenant isn't about thou shalt not, but it's about how to live. It's about how to live. Now you ask the question, what does love demand that I do? And, and this is just a freebie I'm going to throw out here. No charge for this one. That question right there, what does love compel me to do? That will save you in so many circumstances. That will answer so many conundrums you have that maybe aren't answered specifically in the Bible. Right? If the Bible says it, just do it. But if the Bible is vague and it doesn't really say it, what does love compel me to do? It's going gonna, it's gonna to lead you in the way of Christ. Okay? No, that was free. And, and look, this is, this is important. Because it's easy to hear this, and it's easy to think, oh, this is good. This is good. There's no more rules. I can, I can deal with that. Remember, love. God is all about love, not rules, but love always raises the bar. It never lowers it. It raises the bar. When Jesus comes along, he says, yeah, I used to. You couldn't commit adultery. But you know what? If you lust after in your heart, you've already done it. It raises the bar, right? So in marriage now, in marriage, we don't ask, what can I get away with, right? What can I get away with? Instead, we ask, what helps my partner become the best version of themselves, right? They can be, what blesses the heart of God? What makes him happy in my spiritual marriage? What can I do to make that happen? If you think, think about marriage for a second, because that's kind of where we're at today. A law-based ethic would kill your intimacy, right? I, we would never accept like a law-based ethic as a basis for a, a healthy, happy, functional marriage. If I took a law-based ethic into my marriage with Mel, let's say on the issue of faithfulness, instead of asking, how can I show love to my wife? Instead of always asking, instead I would be asking, you know, what can I, what can I get away with and still not have her divorce me? <laughs> Where's that line, right? I mean, she'll be really upset if I have an affair, so... So not that, but, you know, maybe, can I kiss some women, right? She may get really, really angry, but is she going to actually divorce me, you know? She's giving me eyeballs. So no. <laughs> I know now. That's right off the table. Right. No. Um, okay, no kissing. What about holding hands? Uh, maybe just dinner and a movie. Dinner and a movie, you know, a little walking through the park or something like that. What's the line I can get right up to? You see, okay, it's obvious. I mean, it's, it's absurd. The question itself is so absurd and horrible that, the, you know, the, the whole mental space is anti-marriage. It's unloving. It, it actually doesn't matter in that conversation where you decide the line is. The fact that you're having that conversation with yourself means you need therapy, <laughs> right? You, you've already missed the point. You have got issues, man, right? a law-based ethic. What can I get away with before I get in trouble? That, that's what we're supposed to grow out of when we grow up spiritually into a loving relationship with our Creator. And so the question becomes, how can I love my wife in the best way possible when I'm with her and even when I'm with other people? How can I love her in the best way possible? That becomes my motivation. So Paul in this very simple little phrase, he is signaling a revolutionary change from a law-based mentality to a love-based mentality. But now how do we apply this to our sexual lives? Sexual lives. Um, because because I, I, I have people ask me before, where's the, show me the verse. Where's the verse that actually says you can't have sex before marriage? Where's that verse? And it, and which is ironic because it it's so misses the forest for the trees because the verse is the whole body of Scripture. It's the thread that goes all through. It's what God's, this song he's singing to us from Genesis on. And so, yeah, so yeah, yeah. That, it, that's always funny to me. So instead of saying, here's the things you can't do, what would be wrong Sexually, what Paul's trying to say is let's approach, approach this topic of sexuality saying what is the potential for blessing God 
and blessing another person and how we live. Let's skip over to verse 15 because we've read the ones um, earlier, last week. In verse 15, it says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? He's saying our bodies are, are, part of, are parts of Christ. Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Now, interesting here. Don't get too hung up on the word prostitute here. Um, in this day and age, they didn't have singles bars. Um, there, there really weren't that many single people. You know, you didn't like, single people didn't go to work and then like hook up after work. That didn't really happen. Almost everybody was married. If you were single, you still lived in your father's home. And so pretty much anybody who wasn't married but was having sex was going to a prostitute. That's kind of was your alternative. So his point here is not, well, it's wrong to pay for sex, but if you get it for free, it's okay. That's, that's not his point, okay? His point is, is all sex outside of marriage is wrong. Now, there, there was a, a practice back then. We'll talk about this for just a second. There was a practice back in the ancient cults. Uh, you could go to the temple. Uh, you, you walk up, you pay your tithe, and you, have, you could have sex with a prostitute. Uh, the temple prostitute is a way of sort of, you know, achieving that, that glorious, uh, almost religious ta-da experience. You know what I'm talking about. Uh, without, without any of the commitment or relational context that God meant for, for sex. Is a good example of religion created by men for men, uh, right? And strangely enough, male church attendance in Corinth was just through the roof. Um, didn't have to talk them into going to church at all. Um, <laughs> what? Everybody tithed, 100% tithing. <laughs> hmm. Yeah. Uh, in verse 16, he says, Do you not know that he who unites himself, now this word here, is, or to join himself, the Greek word literally means glue, to glue together. And this was a euphemism for sex. It was, it was used in the ancient literature back then for having sex, becoming one flesh. He who unites himself or glues himself with a prostitute is one with her in body. For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord uh, is, un is one with him in spirit. Now, this is interesting here. He says, don't glue yourself with people in, in casual sex. Instead, be glued, he uses the exact same Greek word, to the Lord. So there's no mistaking the level of intimacy that we're being asked of. That God wants to have with us. Now, this gluing, it, it makes a lot of sense if you follow this metaphor to the end, because if we take sex out of the context of lifelong intimacy and commitment, what happens is when we glue ourselves to one person, and then someone else, and then someone else, and the gluing and the pulling apart, the gluing, pulling apart, gluing, pulling apart, what, what happens to the glue? It stops sticking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Eventually, it's going to lose its ability to connect. Isn't that right? Right? I, I've got a poster in my kid's room. I've put that thing up like five times. It keeps falling down because it doesn't stick anymore, right? I, it's like any sticky surface over time. Eventually, the power of sex is, is actually diminished. <coughs> See, when people tell me, Scott, uh, I, I have sex with different people, and I really don't feel guilty about it as if that's, you know, the basis by which we decide if we follow what God says to do or not. I say this to them. Well, well, next time you do that, just imagine yourself breaking covenant with Jesus because that's what you're doing. And then they look at me like I've ruined their whole day. <laughs> right? So, so the person who is living in this lifestyle of serial sexual encounters when that person says, well, I have sex with people, and honestly, it doesn't bother me anymore. Of course not. Of course it doesn't, because sex for that person has lost its power. The glue doesn't stick anymore, right? And, and at, that's the point. 
That's the point when the only cure for your life is to surrender to the healing power of Christ. Because only God can heal and replace what is lost and transform you into that new creation, the new birth, so that you can have that ability again to connect with that one very special person in marriage and be glued forever. God can do that. Now notice something else that's kind of cool. At the end of uh, verse 16, Paul says, the two will become one flesh. The two will become one flesh. Now often we read that and we kind of, you know, imagine it sort of biologically and we think, well, yeah, in the act of, you know, intercourse, you're really, really close to each other, you know. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is reminding us that sex is, is unique among all things on this earth in that you radically give yourself away so deeply that it results in nothing less than personal transformation. There's a passage in Acts chapter 2 where God says he will pour out his spirit on all flesh. And when he's saying that, he's not just meaning I'm going to pour my spirit into lots of human receptacles. Rather, he's saying my spirit is going to be united with your spirit, resulting in your total transformation. Union, right? Sex is this total commitment involving the whole person, and it reflects the intimacy and faithfulness of Christ's love for his bride, which is us, the church. That is why you were never, never meant to have physical oneness without whole life oneness. You were never meant to have physical oneness without whole life oneness. Don't, don't you see how Scripture places such a high value on sex? It views sex as an act of self-commitment that involves the whole person. Right? It's not just some necessary mode of procreation. Uh, it's not just about gratification. It's about giving yourself so deeply that it results in personal transformation, completion. This is why we were never meant to get physically naked or vulnerable with someone without becoming vulnerable entirely, entirely, without total commitment. When we give ourselves wholly to another person, our whole body, our whole total commitment, what results is deeply nurturing to our soul. Deep personal transformation and completion. I, I once heard it described this way so beautifully by um, the pastor and writer Tim Keller. He's an older gentleman who's uh, older than me, I'll, uh, at least. He's been married to his wife for 39 years, and he said this. I'm just going to read what, what he wrote about that. He said, I've been married in this one flesh thing for a number of years with Kathy, and as a result, my wife's mind and heart is so present with me that when I get into a situation, in a split second, I not only have my own instinctive way to act and think and speak, but I instantaneously know what my wife would think and do and say. And for that one second, I actually have the option of going either way, of saying which of these two modes of being is the wisest in this situation. It's not that I have lost who I am, but I have been radically supplemented in a deep way. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that beautiful? See, we live in this society where it's considered normal. It's totally normal to give your body without giving yourself. To keep your independence. To use each other for pleasure. But keep yourself. And it completely destroys this beautiful commitment shaping mechanism that nurtures our soul. It transforms us. It completes us. And Paul, his elevated view of sex within marriage, far from, from seeing sex as, you know, just an appetite or something dirty, it's astounding for his day. It, it really is. Look at this passage in, in uh, first, let's see here. First Corinthians 7. We're almost done here. In 1 Corinthians 7, verse 4, he starts by saying, The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. Now, that first part, 
honestly, that wouldn't sound much different than the other philosophies of the day, right? Sounds like typical kind of male-dominated stuff, right? But look what he says next. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. This sort of, you got to understand, this sort of like egalitarian sexual equality between a man and a woman was unheard of in Paul's day. We're talking about radical intimacy, whole life oneness here, right? Promoted by scripture, and it's far more beautiful and fulfilling than anything we see in culture, his culture or our culture. It's beautiful. So my friends, if every time, my married friends, every time you take your spouse in your arms and you give yourself completely to them, you're not just having sex. You are nurturing each other's souls. You're becoming more, ever more completely glued together in body and soul and spirit. So, we'll finish it off with this. Married people, married people, don't take each other for granted. Don't take it for granted. Don't take the gift of sex for granted. It's more than just a routine, right? Right? It's more than just something to do when there's not that much good on TV. <laughs> it is soul nurture, right? Soul nurture. And remember this, as you're growing closer to your, your spouse more and more every day, let it remind you of that day to come when we will fall into the arms of God, our lover. Oh my goodness. What must that be like to finally experience, to finally experience seeing him face to face? If sexuality, if our sexuality is a reflection of our relationship with God, if the most rapturous moment we can experience in this world is being taken by our spouse in the throes of passion, what must it be like to see him face to face? Oh my goodness in his presence, for real, where there are no more metaphors, no more symbols, no shadows, only the real thing itself, Jesus Christ our Lord, our one true love. Hallelujah. Today, before we, we finish up here, we have the opportunity to partake together in, in one of the most beautiful symbols of, of Christ's selfless love for us, and that is communion. And so, we welcome everyone here who is a believer to join with us. The ushers are going to be coming down the aisle in just a second. And they're, they'll be giving you the elements. Um, we ask that you, you hold on to them uh, for a few minutes. Hold on to them until everyone is served. And, uh, and then after this song I want you to listen to, I'm going to come back up and we'll pray and we'll take it together.
ready to be broken for our healing. He gave his blood to be poured out for the forgiveness of our sins, Father God, so that we could be one with you, so we could be intimate with you, Lord God. Thank you, Lord. We're speechless. We don't know, we don't understand why you would love us so much. We're just so thankful that you do. Thank you for your mercy and your grace that's new every single morning, Lord. We do this in remembrance of Christ and his sacrifice for us. Hallelujah. Let's take the bread together. Thank you, Lord God, that as we as we drink this juice, Lord God, that symbolizes the blood of Christ. I thank you that it's it's washing away every every sin. It's washing away every wound that has been done to us by other people, Father God. Every wound that's a result of our own choices, Father God. I thank you, Father, that it's healing for our bodies that you're restoring us, Father. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Let's take the juice. Hallelujah. Praise you, Lord. God, I ask you right now, Lord, to bless all of these people here today, Lord. I thank you for your touch on their lives. I thank you, Lord, that not a single person here leaves the same as they came. Thank you for what you're doing, the ongoing miracle that you're doing in all of our lives, Lord. Thank you for showing us the next, next right step to take in everything that you have set before us, Father. We praise you and honor for it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Well, I'm gonna ask our prayer partners to come forward at this time. And uh, we love you guys so much. If there's anything at all that you need prayer about, don't leave this place without getting prayed for. These guys are coming forward, and uh, they are going to pray. They'll pray with you in faith. It's not the same when we pray. Hallelujah. And uh, I hope you have the best week we, you ever had. Uh, try to make it back here on Wednesday night, Pastor Study in the Word, and we will see you then and then next Sunday for part three. Bye-bye.